Amen. You may have noticed that there is no outline. Shocking, right? What in the world? No outline. How can that possibly be? Well, I, I'm dealing with a fairly large block of Scripture today, and to be blunt, without an outline, I've got a little bit more freedom to be able to do that. And, and of course, because I do preach verse by verse, expositorily usually, um, I'm trying to deal with a certain amount of, of the maybe a paragraph at a time through the Word of God. But today I'm going to just give you the outline. It's a four-point outline. It'll be pretty easy to discern as we go through here. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so you can turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we will have a declaration of the gospel. And that's what Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15. And then we'll have biblical evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Not just evidence, but biblical evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And then... Uh, a passage we'll go through fairly quickly of uh, the implications if Christ did not rise. The implications of what would happen and what it would mean if Christ did not rise. And then last of all, uh, we won't finish the chapter. It's about 58 verses. We would, well, we'd be here for not till next Easter, but for quite a while. You know, uh, we, But we will end with Christ as the head of all things, giving him all the glory giving him all the honor, as the scriptures do. So, 1 Corinthians 15 is where we begin this morning. Uh, we, we, um, as we do that, let's look at a short declaration of the gospel. Verses 1 through 4. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand. Obviously, this was a church that was known by Paul. It was a church that was established by Paul. It was a church that he spent quite a deal of time, maybe as far as days, number of days and weeks and months, probably longer in Corinth than just about any other place in his ministry of the churches. To which you also received, and which you stand by, which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And if you've been here for any length of time, you're probably familiar with the sermon that I've preached a number of times. It comes out a little different each time. But a three-point sermon uh, that uh, taken from verses 3 and 4. I'm not doing that today. But a three-point sermon that's very easy to remember. And you can get it on the website if you want to. You can send it to uh, your relatives. You know, you can do that through the website. God saves sinners. That's the truth of the matter. That's the gospel in a nutshell. God saves sinners. Well, I'm going to go forward lest I stop there and start preaching that. Okay. But um, that's a wonderful, wonderful truth. And uh, what we have is a short declaration of the gospel. The foolishness of preaching is given to us in verses 1 and 2. The importance of preaching for those of us that know the Lord, of course. Paul goes back to what he established in chapter 1. That God is pleased to present the gospel by messengers who preach the word. You know, preaching was despised by many in Paul's day as a worthless or ineffective exercise. 2,000 years later, I don't think it's any better than it was then, you know. It's famous in our culture to say, but, 
don't preach to me, right? Don't preach to me, you know? Or to say, actions speak louder than words. Well, if actions speak louder than words, then why don't we do drama instead of preaching? Why don't we do something that will really affect a 21st century people? Well, it's because the truth of the matter is there's nothing more effective in God's program than the preaching of the Word because He takes the Word of God and applies it to the heart and now we have a believer. We have one that now sees Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners. When it comes to preaching, it's the words that speak the loudest of all. And preaching is based on the Word of God and then it will be used by the Holy Spirit. Preaching is the central activity of any gospel church, and if anything else becomes that central activity, you soon will have an institution that's not the church at all. That's the truth of the matter. So yeah, we can do other things. Of course we do. We, we had a ladies' breakfast yesterday. It was a wonderful time. It was a great time. We had a men's breakfast the week before that. You know, Great time. We can do that. And talk about the Word of God that way. Um, the teaching of the Word of God is very, very valuable. We just had an excellent Sunday school lesson. We don't call it Sunday school anymore. We're trying to be more politically correct because it's a Bible study. It is a Bible study. Okay, that's not politically correct. That's just the truth. You know, it's a Bible study, and it's important. And we learn, and we grow, and, and we're able to go in-depth on things that sometimes we can't even do in preaching, you know. Well, preaching, central to the church. And preachers are needed. Preachers are needed. But let me tell you, tell you this about preaching. Preaching is not one-way communication. Okay? If it is, then really nothing happened. It's not one-way communication. And worship is not just sitting in a pew. You say, well, I'm sitting in a pew right now. Yeah, but I hope you're worshiping. You know, it's not just sitting in a pew. For the message to be effective, it must be preached and received. The Apostle James says, receive the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Receive it. Listen to it. Be an active participant. Be a listener. Without good, solid, biblical preaching, your soul will dry up. You need it. We all need it. We receive the word, and then we stand on the word. And isn't that what it says? Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which, you also, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you're saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, that has nothing to do with losing your salvation, so I'm not even going to go there. But it does have everything to do with chapter 15, where that word vain appears over and over. Of course, it depends on what kind of uh, translation you have. In vain is very, very common in many translations. There's two Greek words that are often translated in vain or empty or to no purpose, and they appear throughout um, 1 Corinthians 15. Akenos and ake. Ake is the other word. They're two synonyms, really, uh, and they're often translated in vain 
or they can be translated as meaningless, they can be translated as useless, they can be translated as empty, they can be translated as to no purpose. There's slight, uh, slight uh, semantic differences between the words, but basically they're synonyms. And we see that throughout 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses it. It's in verse 14, just look at there. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Your versions may say vain, you know, or in vain. And then uh, we can even say verse 15, yes, we're found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. So you got you to read the context there. You, you can become a heretic if you read half a verse or a verse out of context, you know. Obviously Christ did rise. He's making an argument. We'll talk about that in just a second. But, um, you know, verse 10 I think vein's there again. Let me see. Yeah, there it is. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. I think there's another one here. Yes, it is. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So we have things that are in vain, things that are not in vain. And then, of course, the gospel summary, back to verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Paul isn't telling us this is all that the gospel is. But he's telling us that this is the very heart of the gospel. And without this... There is no gospel at all. Without this, without the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, there is no gospel at all. So first of all, he says, first of all, what's the most important thing? Paul says, I've delivered to you. I've delivered to you what I have received. Paul is a theologian of the church, but he didn't invent his doctrine. He gave to them and to us what he received from Christ. Look at verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 23. Just flip back a couple pages. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And then he tells us about the Lord's Supper. He didn't invent it. It didn't come from him. He received it from the Lord, delivers it unto us. Paul is the messenger. Paul is the spokesman. He's the theologian of the church, but it's not of his own making. He's telling us what has been delivered to him. And the tenses of the verb here are important. Those are verbs. And verb tenses. I don't want to get too technical here, but um, when it says in verse 3 that Christ died, you know what that means. And you know what it means in Greek? It means the same thing. It means he died. It's an aorist tense, very common Greek tensed. And it's, so it's nothing, un, it, it's the truth, it, it happened. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, another aorist tense. You know what it means in English, it means the same thing in Greek. But then there's something that's kind of interesting. That he, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He rose again or... He was raised, according to how your translation would go. 
And this is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense is a, a technical term. It speaks of an action that happened in the past, but it has lasting consequences to it. And you know what it means? It means he ever lives. He's alive. He rose and is alive today. Now, Jesus Christ is the first fruits. We'll talk about that in just a second. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll, get, I'll go ahead and get ahead of myself a little bit. Okay. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the dead. But he's not the first person to ever be raised from the dead. We read in the Old Testament some people that were raised from the dead. Christ in his ministry raised some people from the dead. But he's the first one to rise from the dead and never die again. He's the first fruits. So that's what we'll be talking about when we go to first fruits. Okay. So anyway, how, why did he die? Why did he die? Christ died for our sins. Now I want you to think about what that means. Okay. Paul's writing in a church context. The personal pronoun our is used. It's not our as used of every single person in the human race. Our is his audience. Our is the people he's writing to. Our is the church. O-U-R. It's the church. That's why Christ died. He died for his people. What does it say in Matthew one twenty one? You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The scripture. And the agent of the resurrection is found in this text too. Look at verse 15. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. God raised him up, is what we're saying. And that's also in the perfect tense. It's actually a perfect passive. God was the agent who raised Christ from the dead. And that brings us to an interesting Trinitarian situation here. Because the Bible tells us that he was raised by the power of God. The Bible also tells us that Christ was raised by his own power. So destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Bible also tells us the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. So what we have is a Trinitarian context of the resurrection, which ought not to surprise us because we have a Trinitarian context of our salvation too. He's the great God and Father. He's the Son that redeems, and He's the Spirit that applies. So God chooses, the Son, redeem, or the Son redeems, the Spirit applies. Verses 5 through 11. Verses 5 through 11. Here are the historical evidences of the resurrection of Christ. Let us remember that 1 Corinthians is one of the earlier epistles to be written. Okay? And so it's one of the earlier epistles to be written. There were people around that knew about the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There were some that were even eyewitnesses. And here's a list of some of the eyewitnesses. Those that saw him after his resurrection. Verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas. You know who Cephas is, right? That's just another name for Peter. He's seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve, okay, 
After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. It's been long enough now, some have died, you know. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. Here's a list of some eyewitnesses that saw the Lord. It's not an exhaustive list. Uh, we find other places in the Bible where others are, are talked about too that saw the risen Lord. Uh, but um, it could be a chronological list. It seems to me like it is chronological. Uh, in verse 5, uh, we have Peter and the apostles. Verse 7 probably refers to the ascension of Christ there. And James, of course, the half-brother of Christ who became a leader in the Jerusalem church. Uh, the ascension, 500 eyewitnesses, not referenced elsewhere, but probably occurring in Galilee. Christ told his disciples he'd meet them in Galilee. And so we might have a, a chronological situation here. Um, as, as we went through, I kind of went out of order myself, I'm sorry. But seen by Cephas, by the 12, then 500 brethren at once, probably in Galilee. And then after that, James and all the apostles. Okay, so that's probably the chronological way of all. And Paul is the last one to speak, and he's the last one that uh, talks about having seen the risen Lord. Of course, we know John would later see the risen Lord, right? In a vision. It's the book of Revelation, you know, as he sees the risen Lord. But um, Paul's testimony of himself, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, why? Because I persecuted the church of God. And you know that. He's a persecutor. He actually was uh, hoping to round up Christians and even have them put to death. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. A lot of humility there. We can also surmise something else, and I won't go into great detail here, but I believe Paul is also telling them not to expect any more apostles. The age of the apostles would soon be over. The next generation would not be seen the risen Lord. The next generation, the generation taught by the apostles, would proclaim the truth of Christ's resurrection but they wouldn't see it with their eyes. And you've never seen it with your eyes either. You've never seen the risen Lord. And if you've seen pictures of the risen Lord, you've been misled on what the risen Lord looks like, you know, because nobody knows. Okay. But remember what Christ said to Thomas. And this applies to you. This applies to every Christian here. Christ said, because you've seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. There's a promise to you, and there's a, a blessing to you, that seeing isn't necessarily believing. You know, the Lord changing your heart is what believing really is. So that should encourage us today, you know. Now, quickly, I want to read verses 12 through 19. Because here Paul weaves a masterful argument. What if Christ didn't rise from the dead? 
There's something going on here. We'll just look at it ever so quickly. But verse 12, now if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Kind of a shocking thing that a church would say that. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of Christ that he has raised up Christ. Or testified. He's testified of God that he did raise up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. There's that another word again different way of saying it. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men the most pitiable. There's two ways to look at that. You could say the Christian life is the best life because you avoid so many heartaches, so many trials, so many difficulties, so many problems, so many things that just occur to those that live after the flesh and do their own thing and don't have any worry or concern about consequences and such like that. And that would be true. But if you're resting your soul on a fact of living forever with God, and it's a lie, and it isn't true, that's miserable, and that's pitiable. That's something that, you know, it's just sad. And, you know, there's a lot of people, if you're a Christian, there's a lot of people that think that about you. How sad. They waste, how they waste their time when they could be doing something far more important, far more helpful, far better. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, they'd be right, you know. But it doesn't end there, does it, you know. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. I mentioned firstfruits a little bit ago and already told you what it means. The teaching of the firstfruits is found in the Old Testament, Leviticus 23.10. When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest. Firstfruits is the first portion of a crop or of a flock, and it belongs to God. It was devoted to him and given to him in thanksgiving. The symbolism was, as you gave that first fruit, you were actually showing that God owns the whole thing. Yeah? And that's still true today. As you give your offerings to the Lord, you're saying something. You're saying, you know what? I'm giving this portion, but this portion shows that I know and I believe that all of it belongs to God. All of it is his. And, and that's a great thing. And that's a wonderful. That's the first fruits. And that's a, a whole doctrine in of itself. Um, Paul said this before Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 23. The Christ would suffer and that he would be the first to rise from the dead. So others were raised from the dead only to die again. Lazarus being a good example of that. Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. And now we get to an important theological point in verse 21. 
And it's not just a theological point, it's a very practical point, one that you should really be applying to yourself, whoever you happen to be here today. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And the entire human race is being put into two categories. And the entire human race is in one place or the other. And I'm not going to point to this side and say, here's Adam. Okay, that wouldn't be fair. Okay. But the entire human race is either in Adam or in Christ. And where are you? That's the question. Where are you? If you're in Christ, then you have eternity to look forward to. If you're in Adam, eternal death. Eternal death is what you have to look forward to. You won't be looking forward to it, obviously. It's the doctrine of the two Adams. It's the linchpin of covenant theology. And we believe in covenant theology. Now, simply this, Adam fell in the garden. He had a law to obey. Had he obeyed it, he would have lived and would not have died. But he disobeyed. He died. All in Adam die. You know? Now, we believe there's really good biblical evidence that, uh, that, it, that it well could be that Adam was redeemed. We don't, we don't know. But in Adam, he died. There's the good news, though. You're born in Adam, but you can be redeemed and be put in Christ. That's the wonderful thing. You can be redeemed by God himself. And it's always difficult when we're talking about individual people that way. But uh, God knows. God knows those that are his. You know? And we believe on, on professions of faith in those that tell us that they're Christians. I've done many, many funerals. I've done many funerals, and when I do the funeral of a Christian, one that professes Christ, one that's had an incredible testimony of living for Christ, it's a great joy to preach the gospel and say, if this man, if this woman were here today, they would tell you exactly what I'm telling you now, you know, and use their testimony as a good reminder. Are you in Adam, or are you in Christ? There's the question. In Adam... All die. And that's not just physical death. That's death itself for eternity. In Christ, all are made alive. That's eternity. So may the Lord use his word as you really consider yourself. What am I in? And if you, and if you don't know, and you, you don't know what I'm talking about, I'd be glad to talk to you. And there's others here that would be glad to talk to you about what that means too. Those in Adam, those in Christ... Uh, Romans 5 speaks about it even more plainly, uh, talking about the imputation of Adam's sin on all mankind, but the imputation of Christ's righteousness to all who are in Christ. So there's the doctrine there. The timing of God's plan of redemption is found in verse 23. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming... Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. It's really kind of a simple guideline for end times prophecy. People love end times prophecy. We're actually going through the book of Revelation on Sunday night, and it hasn't been mentioned. 
But here's some shorthand, and we have this a few places in Scripture, that actually give us a, a little a shorthand of what's going to happen and how it happens. You know, Christ is risen from the dead. He's ushered in this last age. We live in the last days. And you hear that a lot, and it's true. We live in the last days. We've been living in the last days for about 2,000 years now. And we'll continue to live in the last days until the Lord returns because there's no other days to come. These are the last days. You know? It's an age of grace. It's an age of the gospel being proclaimed. It's an age of the entire world hearing the good news of the Savior. Well, you say there's some people that don't hear it. Well, that may be true. But it is a worldwide message and meant to be a worldwide message. Okay? So Christ has risen from the dead, has brought in this last age. He will come again, and at his coming, those in Christ will be raised from the dead. He doesn't deal with those who are alive when Christ comes yet. He does that in verses 51 and 52. There will be those that are alive when he comes. May as well look there. We have a moment. 51 and 52 of the same chapter. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. He's using sleep in 1 Corinthians 15 as a metaphor for death. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. You know, Paul is including himself in that number. As he writes in 1 Corinthians, he didn't know if he would be alive when the Lord returned. It was a possibility. He saw that that could happen. He didn't know that it would. By the time he comes to 2 Timothy, he's pretty certain that's not going to be the case. And you can see that in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4. But, you know, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. It's not that souls are sleeping today. That's not the point. Those that have died, that are in Christ, are with the Lord today, in their spirits. They're with the Lord, in their spirits. But you know what? They're going to be put together with their bodies. We are going to be put together with our bodies. I don't know exactly what our body is going to look like. Uh, you can read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 yourself. And he talks about that. You know, he talks about the body. He talks about, uses a metaphor. He talks about um, when you plant a seed in the ground, the seed dies, but it doesn't stay dead. It, it germinates and it grows and it becomes a plant. And he uses that as an illustration of what happens to us. You know, we, we die, yeah, but we're not really dead. We're going to come back. And one day we'll be back in our bodies as the Lord has remade them. So this is biblical eschatology, you know. And uh, it has to do with our great hope. And of course, uh, at almost every funeral of a Christian, I would read um, this, this very passage here from verse 53 on. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought past this, the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, 
Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Well, we can end there, but let me just say just one more thing. Because I would hate to have anyone go away confused. 1 Corinthians 15 can be a difficult chapter. It takes some, some good study. Take some good work to fully understand it. One of the verses that uh, really, some of the verses that really need to be understood are found here in verse 25. Okay, important verses for sure. But let me read 25 through 28 and then explain them quickly. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. So we've got two different he's here, you know. He, Christ, must reign till God has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he's put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Pronouns make it kind of tough sometimes, you know. In other words, um, God, the Father, is not put under his feet. That's not what's happening here. Verse 28. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And that is something that the cults like to use to say, well, you see, Jesus is less than God. Jesus isn't God. Jesus is less than God, or Jesus is a little G-God, you know, whatever I have to say. Well, that's not what's being said here. What's being said is the God-man. The God-man is reigning. The God-man is reigning today. He's king of kings and Lord of lords. You've heard that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's very, very true. That's exactly what he is, exactly who he is. You look around this crazy world that we're living in, and you can think, the world's out of control. Jesus couldn't possibly be reigning, or these things wouldn't be happening. Easy to think like that. It's the wrong way to think, you know. God's always in control. Jesus is in control. Sin can only go so far, and God will restrain it. But sin is allowed to go quite far. But just because there are enemies to the king doesn't mean that he's not the king. They have to overthrow the king if they want to be the ruler. Who's overthrowing Christ? Who's overruling the King of kings and Lord of lords? Psalm 2, Psalm 110. Both of them say that uh, he is the one who reigns. He is the one who rules. But there's going to come a time when the kingdom that's been given to the God-man, this has to do with the fact that he is 100% God and 100% man. The kingdom that's been given to the God-man then delivers it up to the Father. Okay. And that's what it's being spoken about. But you know the mystery of the Trinity? That's the mystery of, that's the, mystery of the hypostatic union, the God-man. The mystery of the Trinity comes into play here because Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Christ is absolutely equal with God the Father. Absolutely, absolutely in his deity, but he humbled himself and took upon himself human nature, the perfect man, so that he could redeem us from our sins. Adam failed. 
Adam failed miserably. Absolutely, he did. With no excuse, he just did. Christ came and lived perfectly and fulfilled the law for us. The reason the law has no condemnation for a Christian is because Christ fulfilled it for you by his righteous life and imputed his righteousness to you. You have Christ's imputed righteousness. And so it's not what my hands have done, but what he has done for me. Christian friend, it's not what your hands have done. You serve him out of gratitude. You serve him out of love. You serve him because he changed your heart. If you don't love him, he didn't change your heart. If you don't serve him, he didn't change your heart. Okay. But a Christian serves him because he loves him. Serves him because his heart has been changed. Serves him because he has Christ's spirit within him. The Holy Spirit dwells within. When I say by works, correction. We are saved by works. We're saved by the work of Christ for us. That's how we're saved. Look to him and be saved. Look to him. The son's role is to redeem and restore. It's his job to bring everything under perfect submission to God. He redeems and he restores. These verses do not marginalize Christ. They emphasize that he will completely and perfectly complete his mission. He'll bring all things to his own glory. He'll destroy all of his enemies. That's hard for us to hear, but it needs to be true. I just ask you, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith? Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're either one of his followers or you're one of his enemies. Have you bowed the knee to him and embraced him as the only savior of sinners? The scripture says, and with this I close, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we've just looked at a small portion of scripture today. The Bible is a big book, but we think of how big it could be. But the gospel is meant to be understood. It can be understood by a child. But Father, the gospel will not be understood unless you open the heart, unless you open the mind, unless you give the hearing, unless you give the calling, unless you do the work that we're unable to do on our own. That's not an excuse. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. And to refuse to do so is to be justly condemned. We also know, Father, that all who seek will find. Because you're the one that gives the desire for the seeking. To you be all the glory. We can take no credit for our salvation. We can take no credit. To you be all the glory. And Father, on this resurrection day, every Lord's Day, of course, the resurrection day. And the reason we meet on the Lord's day because of the resurrection. Father, because of that, Lord, you are King of kings, Lord of lords, and we gladly bow before you. And as we would be glad to be called your slaves and bondservants, you said, I call you brothers. What a great thing.
friends and brothers. And Lord, that's your gift. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.